Recovery from Anything features real stories that some listeners might find distressing. Check the show notes for specific content warnings and information on support services. One night, we went out drinking. I went back to this guy's house and he said, hey, I've got this, do you want to try it? From that moment on, I knew I was hooked. I knew I wanted it. Every moral boundary I ever thought I had went out the window. Anything that I had left of who I was as a person was gone. Welcome to Recovery From Anything. I'm your host, Abby Felton. As someone who discusses their addiction recovery openly on the internet, I'm familiar with the stigma and assumptions that go with it. While most people are kind, supportive and insightful, there are, of course, others who tell me that my life of drug abuse and alcohol dependence was a choice. Obviously, I wanted to hate myself to the point I couldn't bear to be in my own skin for more than two seconds. I wanted to live a depressed life where I would drink vodka straight from the bottle every morning. I wanted to sit in the darkness for days on end, smoking crack with strangers who may or may not murder me. It was a childhood dream of mine. When I grow up, mummy, I want to be a crackhead. Unfortunately, many people still believe addiction to be a moral issue rather than a health issue. Some believe people who use drugs are solely responsible for their addiction and that they deserve their struggles. Dehumanization becomes normalized. In reality, Addiction is a complex, multifaceted issue that involves many different biological, psychological and social factors. In my case, addiction co-occurred with my mental health struggles, depression, borderline personality disorder and as a way to cope with trauma. This week's storyteller's life went a similar route, turning to substances to provide temporary relief from her emotional pain. But the truth is, when you've entered this cycle of self-destruction, it becomes increasingly difficult to stop without addressing the root causes. Here's Tony Becker. I grew up in Johannesburg, South Africa. I was born into a typical Jewish South African family. My parents were married and hated each other. So there was a lot of infighting at the house. When I was a kid, other kids would come to my house because they would think this is the, the nice family, this is the good family. And they didn't get to see what was really going on behind closed doors. And there was a lot of animosity, a lot of screaming, a lot of shouting. So, you know, when doors slam, when your parents' door slams and they're having a conversation that they don't think you're hearing and you hear everything, that's what was really going on. And later on in my life, I actually found out that my parents had been married to each other before, got divorced, got remarried and had myself and my brother, who's three years younger than me. I went to a private Jewish school. I immediately didn't fit in. I didn't look like the other kids. I didn't behave like the other kids. I liked things they didn't like. And I got bullied. I got bullied severely for what I looked like, how I behaved. I actually didn't even get bullied so much by the kids in the beginning as by my mom's best friend, who was my best friend's mother. So this older woman, this woman I saw as an authority figure, is the one that would sit me down and tell me, my hair is ugly, my nose is ugly, I need to fix my face. And that resonated with me. I was scared to see her because it was always going to be a comment about what I looked like. So I started wearing makeup at the age of nine years old. 
And it got to a point where I wouldn't leave the house to go to school if because my mom didn't want me to wear makeup, obviously. And if my hair wasn't straightened and I didn't have makeup on, I would just cause a scene and I'd actually end up staying at home. So it was this constant fight between me and my mother. I don't think it helped that my mom is a beautiful woman, is a really, really beautiful woman. So people compared me to her all the time in my head. And I wanted to, I wanted to live up to her and I just couldn't. I just couldn't live up to that. Primary school was the difficult time of trying so desperately to fit in because I was told also by this woman who bullied me that I needed to be popular in order to fit in. She would even sit me and her daughter down and make a plan about how we would become friends with the popular girls. Obviously, because of all the tension at home and what I was seeing at home, my everything went into trying to live up to that. And I just couldn't. I was just a very sensitive, scared child. When I turned, uh, I think I was about 11, my father, who was like a very strong man, a very strong, stoic man who wasn't at home often. He used to go overseas for work a lot. And I barely saw him. But when I did see him, he was strong. He was stoic. I'd never seen him cry. And one day we got a phone call that he had been in a really, really bad accident. He was skiing and he skied into a tree and he broke his entire body and punctured his lung and his kidney. That was the time I was taken to the hospital to ICU to say goodbye to my father. But he made it through. He pulled through. But that's when the dynamic really changed at home because my father had to relearn everything. He had to relearn how to walk. He had to start his life from scratch. He lost everything. And he became incredibly depressed. And that was my first insight into mental illness and how it can affect someone who's too scared to ask for help. That made the dynamic at home a lot more scary, a lot more eggshells to be walked on, and a lot of me going to school trying to fit in so that I could distract myself what was going on at home and what was going on around me. I was actually an incredibly shy, reserved child. However, this huge shift happened when I went over from primary school into high school. And that's when the shy reserved child realized that I could manipulate a situation if I created a character. I watched The Craft once and I became Nancy from The Craft. If you've not seen The Craft, it's a film about a coven of teen witches led by Nancy, who at the start is super cool, but then turns out to be manipulative and downright sadistic. I too was once a teenage girl, and idolising morally grey characters with their strength and apathy to the opinions of others, Regina George, anyone, is way more attractive than wanting to be a Disney princess. For traumatised people, anyway. I wanted this power. I wanted to create this group of people that were different. We were outsiders, but we weren't really outsiders because people were scared of us and we controlled the narrative. So if they thought we were weird or they thought I was weird, I was going to show them how weird I can be. I'm going to dye my hair black. I'm going to scribble lyrics to Pantera on my backpack so that they can be scared of me and I'm special and different. This shy, reserved child became this out-of-control teenager. I became so obsessed with image. The whole of primary school I was trying to fit in. In high school, I was going to stand out on my own terms and as a character, which was a mask. You know, I took little pieces of other people's personalities, wore them as my own, and created this fake character as a defense mechanism and a tool for manipulation. I hated myself. I hated myself so much that I never got to know myself. It even got to a point where I still struggled to know what kind of music I liked because I saw this character of Nancy, for example, or I saw these kind of goth representing characters and immediately just pretended almost 
to listen to that kind of music because I was so insecure about the things I did like. Like they're never going to be good enough. What I want to do is never going to be good enough. I need to live up to an expectation that I've set for myself that people will look at and be able to understand me. I'm going to live up to a stereotype because I'm in control of that stereotype and how people perceive me. Also, I think going to a Jewish school and being forced in an environment like that's that's religious or an environment that tells you exactly who you are, I'm the kind of person to immediately turn against that. I don't want to be that. So I'm going to be the opposite of everything you're telling me I need to be. So I'm in control of the way I present myself to the world. And then it bega- began to be I'm in control of my body. That's when the eating disorder started to manifest at the age of 13, 14. I got really sick. I was in and out of institutions. I got my first boyfriend in high school, and it was a very, very damaging relationship, incredibly damaging. This was a guy that came into my life who was older than me, who told me how I needed to dress, that I wasn't allowed to show myself. I wasn't allowed to talk to other guys. I wasn't allowed friends. He used to circle my house at night that I lived in with my parents to see who was at my house. It was a very controlling relationship. At that point, I wasn't allowed to drink when I was with him. I was judged if I drank. And I left high school and ironically decided I was going to be an actress, which makes so much sense. Just anything but myself, anyone but myself. So I left high school and I went to university, which I was excited about because I was coming out of this bubble that I hated, that I was stuck in my whole life. And I went to a university, got to meet a variety of people and just break out of this bubble. But again, I needed a new character. And I actually have this written down in my journals. I went to university on my first day and I was dressed as the girl that I used to dress like at school, that person. And it wasn't good enough for varsity in my head. I needed to be more. I needed to be weirder. I needed to be, to stand out. I needed to be more hip, like a hipster and and fit this mold. And that's what I became. I created knowingly, and I wrote this down in my journal, I need to be someone new. And I went to Varsity as a new character. And this was a girl who was cool and chilled and didn't care about what she looked like, although I did. That that was the perception I tried to create for myself. I was doing quite well at university and eventually had the courage to leave this really, really horrible relationship that I was in. As soon as I left that relationship, that controlling relationship, I could drink again. I remember the first night we broke up, I went to a party. We were all dressed up. I was dressed up as Emo Tinkerbell. And we went to this house party. I drank a bottle of vodka, which was my drink of choice, and I blacked out. And every time I drank, even in high school, I used to black out. It was like, I thought that was normal. I thought that's what happened to people when they drank, that it was just a part of being drunk. Apparently, it's not. I drank at this party. I got incredibly blacked out. I caused chaos. I think I got into a fight with about five other girls. Everyone had to calm me down and get me home. And that became my normal for the rest of university. It was just partying, drinking. I would be in a production. I would be in a play, but I would go out night after the play, get blackout drunk, go to university the next day. And this became a cycle. I struggled to remember those days. After that relationship, I got together with someone else. I was dating this guy. I had only ever been with one other person. I went to his house. We were watching Harry Potter. I will never forget. I can't watch Harry Potter to this day. And I said no, as it goes. And no wasn't an answer for this guy. And he, um, he raped me in his home with his parents in the house. And I didn't want to scream or shout 
makes me sad when I think about it because I didn't want his mom to know that he was like that. I kind of didn't scream. I didn't shout. I just said, no, no. And then I let it happen. And it's almost like I went outside of my body and this thing happened. And when I got up, I started questioning it. I was like, did that really happen? Did that really happen? Like maybe, you know, maybe I did something or said something or I, I mean, we dating, you know, all those kind of questions go through your mind. And he got up and he went to the kitchen and I got up and I, you know, slowly got dressed and I was, I was hysterical. I wasn't okay. And I got up and I picked up my car keys and I walked to the kitchen and I said to him, I want to go home. And he looked at me and he started crying and he said, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And that is one of the strangest moments for me because I was questioning whether this had occurred and, and questioning myself about the situation and to have him kind of solidify it and almost seem sad that he had done this and make me feel sorry for him that he had done this. It was the weirdest experience of my entire life. That night I drove home and I went to my mom and I woke her up. My parents were separated at this point and I told her what happened. I don't remember anything else after that. I do this thing often in my life where I black out a lot of trauma and completely black it out. Recently, I actually spoke to my mom about it for the first time. And she told me that we actually spoke to this person on the phone and he admitted to everything and I didn't want to take him to the police. Fast forward, one night I was drinking. I got incredibly drunk and... I, I should also add that during this time I was taking ephedrine. I was taking pills to help with my weight that were incredibly illegal. And I was taking those. So I was fueling my body with so many chemicals, but the drinking was substantial. It was substantial. And one night I went to my friend's club. They owned a club and I got in my car and they took my keys away from me. They were like, you can't drive. You can't do this. And I started throwing a, a scene, a scene. I was screaming at them. I was shouting, how dare you tell me I can't drive drunk right now? And I turned my car on and I reversed and I tried to run over three of my friends. And they all jumped out of the way. I ran over bottles of alcohol that they were bringing into the club that night. I took a corner. It started pouring with rain and I rode my car off in a golf course. And those same friends that I had tried to run over had to come pick me up and get me home before I got arrested by the cops. That was when I went to my first rehab for alcohol and alcohol alone. I was there for a week. I uh, checked myself out because I was magically cured. And my cousin, who was my, was my best friend, she came to visit me when I left rehab. And she knew everything that had occurred in my life. She was my rock. She was there. Like For all my insanity and my drinking and my wild partying, she was like this constant and this strong figure of calm. She was kind. And she came to the house and she was like, I'm so proud of you. Well done for going to this facility, even though you checked out after a week, but I'm proud of you. She had a headache that night and went to bed. And then at three o'clock in the morning, I got woken up by my mom who had gotten a phone call to say that Terry had been rushed to hospital and she fell into a coma and she had meningitis. She was in a coma for three weeks and she didn't make it. And we had to say goodbye to her. And she was a young, young woman. Instead of sitting there and dealing with the fact that I just lost my best friend and the person and that my auntie had just lost her child, just buried her child. My cousin, who was eight months pregnant, had just lost her sister. And my other cousin, who was writing high school finals, had just lost her sister. I made it all about me. And in that moment, I thought to myself, hey, this is the perfect excuse to mess up your life more. And that is when I met a guy and who I knew was a drug addict. 
And I, again, perfectly curated my entire experience knowing that this person was chaos and I went straight for it. I was like, I want that. I want that. And you know what? No one can give me shit for it because poor me, poor me, I just lost my sister, my cousin. I've been through all these traumas. I could just tick them off and be like, you can't say this. You can't tell me I'm out of control because you haven't been through A, B, C, D. It was just this victim mentality, this victim mode that was driving me towards more chaos. One night we went out drinking and we were, we were, tra I mean, I was completely trashed. I was blackout and I went back to this guy's house and he said, Hey, I've got this. Do you want to try it? And he took it out and he told me it was cat, which was met methcathinone. And I was like, yeah, you know, I was drunk, going to do this. And I did it. And three days later, we were still in the same spot in the house. My heart was pounding through my chest. I was paranoid as all hell. And I looked at him and I was like, what is this? Am I going to die? Like, am I going to die? I don't understand what's going on. And he was like, oh, by the way, that wasn't cat. That was crystal meth. And that was when I first came across my drug of choice. From that moment on, I knew I was hooked. I knew I wanted it. I knew that this was something I was going to seek in my life. I, re I remember sitting there going, oh, fuck. You know, I really did enjoy that. And also, it took away a lot of my disordered thinking. So it took away the eating disorder thoughts and gave me something else to focus on and eased that part of my mind, which, which was crazy to me. And so beca began a cycle of cat and myth that completely controlled my life. Every moral boundary I ever thought I had went out the window. Anything that I had left of who I was as a person was gone. And I completely lost myself. It started out twice a week in the beginning, doing this um, drug with this person, staying up for days on end, which does make you insane. It makes you insane hearing things. And also like I would get this, I thought I was being so productive. I thought I was being so productive. I could do anything. I could build a table. I did build a table. It was terrible, but I built a table. And I thought I had this energy and this glow and that I was in control and I found something that was me and I found this group of people that was my tribe, you know, all that bullshit like kind of thinking to make you feel like you're a part of something. So I had that in the beginning and it felt fun in the beginning. It did. It felt like this exciting thing um, I could do. And also the fear that I had regarding um, my body and everything disappeared. And I'm talking in terms of what I look like and in terms of sex, everything like that, it disappeared with this drug. And I didn't have that trauma like in my head that was manifesting every single day. I thought, I thought it took it away. And then quickly and surely I started creating more trauma in my life, in my addiction. Where the real shame and the real guilt comes in is what I put my family through. I started stealing from my mom, from my dad. And I'm talking a lot of money. Like um, I would say one month would be 60,000 Rand a month from my mom. And I would do it so sneakily and so destructively and take her card and withdraw like certain amounts at a time so she didn't get a notification. I went from being a victim of abuse to being an abuser. I put my mom through physical and mental anguish. I became my mother's abuser. I was living with her in the beginning at this time and she would do whatever it took to try get me to not leave the house and go to this guy's house or go to the dealer or go to the trap house. Like she would do whatever it took and to get away from her, I would hit, I would beat, I would scream, I would shout, I would scratch, I would physically harm my mother to get what I wanted.
I remember one night my mom tried to restrain me from leaving the house and I took a glass and I threw it at her and I cut her whole leg open with the glass all the way down it like slit her leg and my brother was at home at the time and he jumped on top of me and he was like how can you do this how can you do this and I started screaming and hitting him and kicking him and saying the cruelest things to this kid he was strong my brother and he didn't hurt me. He, I was hitting him and he tried to like kind of throw me to the side. And as he did that, I saw it as an opportunity as an addict to be like, oh, Warren is throwing me to the side. Okay. When he does that, I'm going to throw my body harder. I'm going to hit my head against the wall as hard as I can. So what I can do is I can get out of the house. I can go to my father who was separated from my mom at this point, tell him I'm being abused by my brother at home because my father was so separate from the addiction at this point and get money and a place to stay for a while. And that's exactly, exactly what I did. When my brother pushed me to the side, I threw myself and hit my head and the side of my body against, I think it was a wall or a cupboard. I can't really remember. And literally bruised myself. And I managed to get out the house. I walked over my mother as she was bleeding on the floor. And I got into the car because I still had this car at this time. And I drove straight to my, my dealer. And I got my drug of choice. I went to my dad. I told him I'm being abused. He sent me money. And I went to my boyfriend at the time's house. And that's the kind of things I would put them through. My brother was so was three years younger than me. He used to, he told me, he used to sit there and pray that I died. Just die. Like, do you, you need to die? What is this entity living in my house? This isn't my sister. Just die. I fucking hate you. I want you dead. Like, he had so much pain. My brother moved out of the house and moved in with his girlfriend, who's now his wife. And I mean, he was young. He moved in with her and her family because of what he was dealing with at home. You know, he made that decision for himself and he was scared to because he didn't want to leave my, my mom with me. And that's the kind of stuff I would do. So the, the, the lying and the stealing is nothing compared to the guilt and shame I feel around how abusive I became as an individual on that drug. I literally was just this ball of chaos and abuse that was just rolling through life trying to get what I want. The last time I was taken to rehab, I was at a point where I was living in my car in a friend's parking lot. I had lost everything. I, I, I had no money. I was doing anything I could for money. One day, my mom found me where I was and she was like, just come home. So I went there and she was like, I'm going to do a drug test on you. And <laughs> this was the time I thought I could get away with being on drugs. And I took a little grape. I put it in my panties and I went to do this drug test and I squeezed the grape and my mom saw it and she was like, what are you doing? <laughs> You're clearly on drugs. You're clearly on drugs. And I left the house. I left. I bounced before she could do anything. I drove in my car and I thought I could be clever. And I drove to my dad where my dad was staying. And I went in there and he saw me for who I was at that point. You know, I got to the door trying to go there playing victim. You know, mom's lying, Warren's lying, my family, everyone else is lying. But what I'm telling you is the truth. He invited me into the place. I went into the bathroom in his house to obviously do drugs, acting like I was just going to use the bathroom. And he locked me in. And my father had never been involved in any of this. He had heard about it, but he had kept this distance because he had his own mental health stuff to deal with at this point in time. He didn't understand the extent until he saw me that day. He phoned a rehabilitation center and one I had never been to before. And I think that was a big thing for me. I was used to a certain kind of rehab and a way to manipulate the system, you know, and manipulate my way through and get out when I wanted to. And he phoned a different kind and he said, this is my daughter. She's addicted to meth, cat, and she has an eating disorder. And they said, we booking her in tomorrow. She sounds like she's going to die. 
And at this point, I was very sick. I was very ill. I was in deep psychosis, paranoid, scared. I was sick. My body was dying. What was different at this rehab was that most of the counselors were actually recovering addicts themselves. And the other facilities I had been to, I found it quite easy to manipulate with sob stories about my life. On my second week in there, I actually got rushed to the emergency at hospital because my kidneys just stopped working properly. I was taken to this hospital. I was there for a while. I don't remember how long it was. If I had had my cell phone or access to a phone at that time, I think I would have called the dealer. I didn't want recovery. But then they sent me back to the facility, you know, and I was sick. I was very ill. I was weak, detoxing. I wasn't in a good space. And then when things changed was I was in a group setting and it was all of us in the group and this one counselor and I was telling her my sob story and I was speaking about the sexual stuff, about stuff with my family um, and then I brought up my cousin and I told her about my cousin who died, which is a very emotional story if you tell it in the right way, you know, and I'm like watching her and I'm telling the story and she's not getting the reaction I'm used to getting. And I'm like getting a bit irritated by it. And I'm like still telling the story about how this is my soulmate and she died. And I promised her I would stay sober and I didn't. And, you know, trying to pull on those heartstrings. And she was just listening to me. And as soon as I finished, she looked at me and she said, okay, Tony, so how does it feel having disrespected the memory of your dead cousin? And I sat back on this chair and I was like, I'm going to hit this bitch. I'm going to hit her. And I actually thought, no, you know what? Maybe just sit with this for a bit. And I did. And I realized she was right. And that had never happened to me before. I hadn't been self-aware in a really, really long time. And in that moment, I realized I had dismissed my entire family's feelings about losing this amazing woman. Um, I dismissed my mourning and my mourning period about her and used her death as an excuse to fuel my life into the shit further, hurt my family further. And I was using my cousin's name as the reason for me to do what I was doing to my whole family that's when things started to change. And it wasn't like this big, massive spiritual awakening that happened. It was just a small moment of uh, realization and self-awareness. I decided to lean into what they were teaching me. And there it was a 12-step program. And I started working the steps. And like I say, it doesn't work for everyone. For me, that really is what worked for me. And it was an amazing experience. And I started working it slowly. I really threw myself into it and started seeing my part in things, which was new to me. I started not playing the victim as much and telling my story to another human being, telling my story to someone who would listen and then being able and privileged enough to sit in a group of people and hearing them be honest and open and vulnerable about their story and being able to look for the similarities, not the differences, and to sit in that space and share that space with people that really fucking just get it, you know, and are trying. Doesn't mean they're all good and magical and we're all magical beings, that they're just trying. And for me, that's where the change came. They say that the opposite of addiction isn't sobriety, it's human connection. And I feel like that is where the change came. And one day at a time in that process, I realized slowly, shit, I have too much to lose for the first time in my life. Tony's story doesn't end there. The process of addiction recovery is not a case of simply putting down your drug of choice and then living happily ever after. Recovery is a lifelong process that changes over time. And to really find stability, you have to face every part of yourself, every nook and cranny of your life, your spirit, your mental health. Once you gain the clarity of a sober person who is at last in touch with their emotions, that's when the real work starts. And Tony had a lot of work to do. 
I've been sober for 11 years. The first seven years of this recovery, I was struggling severely with an eating disorder. Severely. That nearly took me out while I was sober. I put down the substance. I put down the drug. I start building this life and it's a beautiful life. I start making these friends and building all of this, but I'm holding on to one thing and it's dark and it's it's all consuming and it's taking huge control over my life. And I also felt separated from a community because I felt I was lying to them and not telling them all this other really difficult stuff that's going on with me. And I actually started retreating from going to the 12 steps during this time. I would dip my toe in and, you know, go back to my room and my friends, but keep this little secret that was all mine. And it really nearly killed me. That shift was the hardest shift I've done in my recovery. But because I did, I was, I was able to put down drugs and alcohol. I knew I was able to try at least beat that. And it took a lot of hard work, a lot. While, when I put down the drugs and the alcohol and started doing well, my father started doing well in his mental health recovery, like really well. And we started seeing each other every single Sunday. As soon as I got out of rehab, every single Sunday without fail, I would sit with him and I would talk to him. We'd have coffee and we'd speak about what's going on in our lives. I had nurtured this relationship with my father and my brother, surprisingly, you know, he started joining us every Sunday for these breakfasts. He slowly started to trust me again, which was something I never thought I would get from my brother. But it, it was slow and it was progressive. Just like addiction is progressive, so is recovery and, you know, amends and relationship building. One day, my brother and I got a call to go to the hospital. My dad had just turned 60, still a young, strong, stoic man, this man who survived breaking his entire body, relearning everything, you know, called us to the hospital and we were like, okay, what's going on? And we got called into a room and the doctor said to my dad, Alan, you have stage four pancreatic cancer. You have nine months to live. And I looked at my dad and he kind of slumps in his chair and I see he's taking this in. He's being told, you are going to die. There's no way around it. You are dying. I looked at him and I was just overcome with emotions and I realized that the way I was looking at him is the way that he had been looking at me my entire life. She is going to die. It's only a matter of time. And I got up afterwards and I went and I sat outside and I didn't want my dad to see me breaking down. And he came straight up to me, ignored everyone, went straight up to me and he said, Tony, make me one promise. And I was like, yeah, he goes, don't die before me. That is how bad the eating disorder was at that point. And he was only concerned about me, not the fact that he had nine months to live. And I promised him this battle, I'm going to fight. This is going to be it. And we're going to do it. And we're going to fight together. He didn't live to see me recover from my eating disorder. He didn't make it. He didn't get to see that. The thing is, my recovery was possible. His wasn't. And I did it. And I fought. In that process, I re-immersed myself in a 12-step community, in desperately trying to change my behavior and trusting that my thinking was going to change in time. It's, it's this slow progress of learning and failing and making mistakes and owning up to it. But I'm at a point now where I'm so comfortable in my own body, something I never thought I would do. It's like one recovery after another, after another, and that's life. And it's okay to keep fighting it, you know. On my 10-year recovery, my counselor who said to me in, the, um, in that room that day, how does it feel having disrespected the memory of your cousin, came to my 10-year share. And at the end of it, she said, Tony, how does it feel having respected the memory of your father and your cousin? That for me is the most pivotal moment in my recovery. It was one of the most pivotal moments to have this other woman just sit there and say that to me and make me actually see, oh, you know what? I fucking did that. So what does life look like for you now? 
I'm happy, man. I'm I'm just I'm happy. I have a really fulfilling life. You know, I've got a ama- like if I tell you the most incredible group of friends, some in some who are addicts in recovery, some who are just normal and I hate using that word, just people who aren't addicts, you know, like this really really core group of friends that I am so grateful for. And it's so nice not to wear a mask in front of these people. I I actually feel like I'm really being myself. I'm in an amazing relationship. I've been in a relationship for almost five years now, my most stable relationship ever. It's just, it's fantastic. He's not a recovering addict or anything like that. It's just this cool understanding because I am 11 years sober now, you know, I've got this life outside of that. What does recovery mean to me? Everything. Without recovery, I would not have anything. For me, recovery is being able to say I'm not okay. It's being able to reach out and ask for help or retreat and then say, sorry, you know, I messed up and I'm going to learn from it. Recovery is something I choose every single day and I wake up and I choose it. And hopefully tomorrow I wake up and choose it. But I do know that without recovery, I wouldn't have anything. I wouldn't have any, I wouldn't have my life. You've been listening to Recovery From Anything. I'm your host, Abby Felton. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate and review the show and join the community on Instagram at Recovery From Anything. You can find out more about this week's storyteller or submit a story of your own on our website, recoveryfromanything.com. Thank you for listening.